0: And I think most everyone is aware of the fact that uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is known as the love chapter. All right, all right. It's without a doubt the most quoted chapter from all of the epistles. We print it on plaques to decorate our homes, we engrave it on cards to send to loved ones, and we Read it at weddings. It's a beautiful, poetic expression of love in its truest form. But you know, 1 Corinthians 13 comes between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Okay? Big revelation there. And it wasn't written as a sonnet to send To your beloved, it was written to deal with a problem in Corinth. Paul's whole letter, in fact, is problem-oriented. The Corinthian congregation was a church in trouble. They were divided over leadership and ministry styles. They lacked spiritual maturity, but were wise in their own eyes. They overlooked obvious sin in the church and were taking each other to court. There were major problems in their homes and their marriages. Some were being drawn back into Corinth's idolatrous social life and didn't care how it affected others in the church. Or in the community. Women were fighting for their rights and ignoring propriety. The Lord's Supper had turned into a time to eat and drink with friends. While ignoring those who had nothing to eat. And their worship service had turned into a circus of performers each trying to outdo the other by flaunting the spiritual gifts they'd been given. And the Corinthian church was a gifted church. Every Christian in the community had been given a spiritual gift when the Holy Spirit indwelt them, just as has been done for us. They were each given a gift to be used for the common good. And no doubt, some in the church had been given special leadership gifts through the laying on of the apostles' hands, gifts that were intended to give direction to the church before the apostles' teachings were all written down and collected in the New Testament. But in their desire... To express the gifts of the Spirit, they had overlooked the fruit of the Spirit. The rivalry, bickering, and division in the church made it obvious that something very important was missing. Love was missing. And love is the first fruit of the Spirit. According to Galatians five. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruit that are produced in a Christian's life as he submits to the Spirit's prompting and as he matures in his Christian walk. Well, the Corinthians, while gifted by the Spirit, weren't even to first base with the fruit of the Spirit. They didn't have love. They didn't have agape, that that God-like commitment to put others first, to seek the best for others because of what God had done in their life. And so, Paul pens for us here the most beautiful words about true love, about agape ever written. Setting before us the preeminence of love, the practice of love, and the permanence of love. We're going to cover the whole chapter today, starting with the first three verses if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor. And if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Paul begins this chapter by inferring, you are all excited about the gift of tongues. Hoping to demonstrate the Spirit's presence in your life by miraculously speaking foreign languages or at least appearing to do so. But is that really the proof of the Spirit's presence in your life? Is that really the most important thing? Not at all. Even if you could miraculously speak every language of earth and heaven, but didn't have love, it would be empty noise, just like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, we've recently gone through another political season leading up to an election, and didn't we all get tired of the political rhetoric, with politicians making promises that we know they can't or won't keep? You know, even with the best speech writers and media consultants, they sound like noisy gongs and clinging cymbals to our skeptical ears. They tell us how much they care. And what they're going to do for us, but few of us actually believe they are motivated by altruistic love. Well, the same thing is true in the church. No matter how wonderfully you speak, no matter what language you use, no matter how holy it might seem, it's empty if it's not motivated By the love of God. And this isn't just an indictment of tongues. The same is true of prophecy and mysteries and knowledge and faith. Paul makes it clear that even if you have the gift of knowing the mind and will of God, even if you understand how God is working behind the scenes in the world, Even if you understand his plan and program for man and have the faith to see his hand at work in all circumstances and to see through all obstacles, if you don't have love, you're nothing. You may be the best preacher in the world, you may be the greatest philosopher since Plato, you may be the wisest counselor since Solomon. You may be a man of unlimited vision and faith, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. You may give all your possessions to feed those in need, and even give up your life in a grand gesture of self-sacrifice, but if you don't have love, God's kind of love, agape love, you've gained nothing. You see, it's possible to be noble, even sacrificial, without loving. You know, many people do benevolent works out of a sense of duty or to gain a sense of personal satisfaction out of being able to do for others. It's possible to appear on the surface to love without really loving. And if that's the case... Your gestures of love are meaningless. Agape love, God's kind of love, is preeminent. And if you don't have it, you have nothing. No matter how benevolent or wise or charismatic you might be. So how do you know? How do you know if you are practicing God's kind of love? Well, Paul doesn't want us guessing, so he spells out how love is to be expressed. Verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, if we evaluate that, I think the first thing we'll notice about the kind of love Paul expects us to practice is that it is not based on feelings. It's a kind of love he elsewhere commands husbands to have for the wives. It's a kind of love Jesus commands us to have for our neighbors and even for our enemies. It's something we do. Not something we feel. You know, you can't command anyone to feel a certain way. But you can insist that they act a certain way if they claim to have the love of God within them. And so Paul describes the practice of love beginning with two positive statements about the nature of love. He says love is patient and love is is kind. Now the word he used for patient is one that refers to being patient with people, not circumstances. It doesn't mean you know you don't get annoyed at the supermarket unless it's people you're getting annoyed at. The King James Version translates it suffers long. It means you put up with people. And their faults and shortcomings. The same way God loved us while we were yet sinners. We love others in spite of their imperfections. And love is kind. It doesn't just do what it has to do. It does it in a nice sort of way. Origin, and early church father. Said it means, love is sweet to all. (laughs) But you know, being sweet doesn't mean you overlook faults that need to be addressed. And in a very straightforward, loving way, Paul turns now negative, defining love by describing what it's not. He says, love is not jealous. It doesn't envy. What another has, or even worse, begrudge the fact that they have it. Love doesn't puff up with arrogance, making us think we're the most important person in the world or in the church, and that everyone should look up to us. Love isn't rude, it doesn't act disgracefully. It doesn't treat people like objects to be used for personal gain. It doesn't insist on its own way. It doesn't fight for its rights. It's not provoked, not touchy, ready to take offense. It doesn't fly into temper tantrums. It doesn't keep records of wrongs and find pleasure when somebody gets What's coming to them? Now does all this sound familiar? Well Paul's been addressing these kinds of problems for 12 chapters. No doubt the Corinthians saw themselves reflected in this list of negatives. They had become a picture of what love is not. And even if the truth hurt. Paul said they would rejoice in the truth if they truly wanted to reflect God's love. Then Paul says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How how beautiful is that? Love bears all things. In the Greek, that primarily means to protect or preserve by covering. Love tries to protect by keeping a lid on things that would harm others. It doesn't gossip and spread hurt around. And right along with that, it believes all things. That doesn't mean it's gullible, but that love is eager to think the best, to allow for situations and circumstances. And love hopes. All things. It refuses to take failure as final. It hangs in there. It endures because it knows that a loving Heavenly Father is still in control. That's what love is like. That's how love is practiced in the home, in the world, and in the church. Love is preeminent. Love is practiced. And love is permanent. Everything else will be gone someday. Only love will last. Verses 8 through 13. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these... Is love. In their quest for spiritual gifts, the Corinthians had ignored love, the first fruit of the Spirit. And in the end, love is the only thing that matters because it's the only thing that will last. Spiritual gifts are temporary. In nature, How foolish to fight over them, to become unloving because of them, to compete with one another, trying to outdo one another. Paul said even, even the greater gifts, gifts of prophecy and knowledge, would be done away with. That knowing in part and prophesying in part would be done away with. Now, the word he used indicates that they would be replaced. That they would be replaced by something else. And he notes that they would be done away with, replaced, when the perfect comes. But he doesn't explain what he means by perfect. Now, the word perfect can refer to something without flaw. Something that is entirely whole, or something that has reached its goal, something that is complete. But Paul doesn't tell us how he's using the word. And quite frankly, he makes it even harder to determine what he means when in verse 12 he says, we now see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. That now we know in part, but then we will fully know, as we have been fully known. Now, many believe that this is a reference to the end of time, the second coming. And that the perfect refers to Jesus. That when he returns, we will see him face to face. And everything will be made clear. Now, I am sure that everything will be cleared up when Jesus returns. But I'm not convinced that's what Paul is talking about here. That's not what the perfect refers to here. I'm not alone in that. In fact, some Commentators insist that it cannot refer to Jesus because in the Greek, it's in the neuter case, not the masculine, as it would be if it referred to Jesus. They believe the grammar itself makes it clear that Paul is referring to a perfect, a completed thing, not to a perfect person. So, what might that thing be? Well, Paul's been talking about spiritual gifts of prophecy and knowledge. And he refers to them as being partial in nature. Incomplete. When the perfect comes, he says, they will be done away with. They will be no longer needed. I can't help but see a reference here to the completed revelation of God, the scriptures themselves. You know, during the formative years of the church, God made his will known through the apostles and through individuals who were given gifts of knowledge and prophecy. And in the absence of an apostle, when a question or situation would arise in a congregation that required knowledge of God's will, those who had been given gifts of knowledge and prophecy, most likely through the laying on of the apostles' hands, would be given insight into his will for that situation. Now, obviously, they were not given The full revelation of God's will for everything, just a limited understanding of his will, a partial knowledge of his will for that circumstance. But when the full revelation of his will for the church was finished, when the New Testament was completed, those partial gifts would no longer be needed they would cease, be done away, replaced by that which gives a more complete picture of God's will for us than a partial reflection as seen in a dim mirror. You know, to see face to face was used in Scripture as a metaphor for seeing clearly, not for actually looking someone in the face. It was said that Moses spoke to God face to face. But when he asked to see the face of God, he was told no one could see the face of God and live. It's through the completed revelation of God's will for us that we are given a perfect look into the face of God. It's when we are given the full revelation of God's character and will that the dim reflection of His person is cleared up. And He is fully known to us as we are fully known to him. When that was done, the partial was done away with. And in the midst of saying prophecy and knowledge would be done away, Paul says point blank that tongues, the gift that was apparently causing quite a problem in Corinth, would one day cease. Now, it's true he doesn't say when they would cease. But if tongues, like miracles and healings, is a sign gift used to verify the message revealed through gifts of prophecy and knowledge, it's obvious that when prophecy and knowledge are no longer needed in the church, the purpose for tongues will have ended. Now, we're not through discussing tongues. Paul's going to address this matter in detail in chapter 14. But at this point he's simply saying that tongues, like prophecy and knowledge would one day come to an end. Paul says to the Corinthians, "Yes, These things are important, but they're temporary. Don't miss out on what is permanent because of your preoccupation with the temporary. Man, is that a powerful statement. And it applies to everything in our life. Is that not true? I'm going to read that again. That's pretty good. Don't miss out on what is permanent because of your preoccupation with the temporary. Boy, the more I read that, the better I like it. i read it again. Don't miss out on what is permanent because of your preoccupation with the temporary. Wow. And applying that to this situation... He says, some things are needed to bring us to maturity. But we are expected to abandon them as we mature. We shouldn't still speak, think, or reason like a child after becoming an adult. We must not let ourselves be sidetracked, by juvenile temporary practices and forget the preeminent need for love. And then he ends by noting that even as important as faith and hope are to the Christian, the time is coming when they... Will no longer be needed. When Jesus returns. Faith and hope will be fulfilled. And all that will remain is love. For all eternity. So don't live now without love. Obviously, you can't love with God's kind of love if you haven't first been touched by it yourself. And God does love you. He proved it on a cross. But you've got to accept His love. You've got to respond to Jesus' invitation. And He is calling you today Softly and tenderly to the wonderful love he's promised. That's where we start in becoming loving people. By letting him love us. If you've not embraced the love of God personally, I invite you to come and let him love you. And then I pray that we will allow his spirit to teach us all how to really love one another. Let's stand.